And Nintendo's going to have really big eyeballs as they see exactly what I've done to Sega and all of these companies <laughs> are going to try to figure out how to batten down the hatches and make sure this never happens again. This episode is supported by MonsterJoysticks.com. Level up your Raspberry Pi with our all-in-one arcade kit using genuine Sanwar arcade parts. And OneClickPrint.com for your photos on canvas, acrylic, gifts and more. Local craftsmen and global delivery. Welcome to a new round of Retro Tea Breaks, our first of 2021, and what a guest we have to kick us off. We love to meet the pioneers of the video game industry, the very first to scale the mountain, but for today's guest, the mountain didn't even exist when he started out. The tectonic plates of gaming hadn't yet shifted, and the home micro industry was yet to be born. But he had a vision, and he's going to share that vision, I hope, with us today and his story. It's none other than Trip Hawkins. Welcome, Trip. Thank you. Hello. Trip, take us back, if you will. I understand EA was set up in California, but is that where you grew up also? Yes, actually, my uh, uh, my parents' families came to California around 100 years ago. And I was born in L.A. because at that time, that's where the jobs were. But uh, their families actually were really from San Diego. So we kept moving further south uh, until we got back to San Diego and it was a it was a very exciting time to be in California and to uh, appreciate the, the aspects of what was going on in the culture that I think uh, helped bring out and activate some of the uh, personality traits and gifts that I had that I could really use to end up having the career that I did. And during your childhood, were there any entrepreneurial influences in the family that inspired you to take the path of business yourself or did that come further down the road? You know, it's not the kind of thing that I realized as as a kid, but pretty much California is a very entrepreneurial place and a whole lot of interesting things have happened here in the last, uh, I don't know, 170 years since the gold rush. And there's been a constant theme around uh, pioneering people from all over the world coming here because it's a, a land of opportunity and then ending up being surrounded by other people like themselves. Uh, there's actually been a thing uh, called Founders Effect that has once you get a group that has a lot of similarities collected in one place, they start having families together and they just sort of, you know, just continue that that flow. Uh, and I didn't really understand uh, how lucky I was to be in California. And my parents had been more uh, been more cautious because if you think about it, they had to live through the the Great Depression, the World Wars and, you know, other horrible uh, challenges. And so people were pretty tough. Uh, what I did notice about my parents is that they uh, were very artistic and very creative, but that was their hobby. So we're all pretty creative. And, and uh, you know, I didn't have parents telling me, you can be creative uh, for a career. You can be an artist for a career. You can make a life out of it. I didn't have any of that kind of messaging. But later on, I mean, much later on, when I was looking back and I uh, did a little more uh, in the way of interviewing the uh, elders in my family, I began to realize that, wow, my uh, grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents, these were incredible risk takers. And a lot of them had started businesses back in San Diego in the 20s that were you know, really uh, innovative and pioneering. So, you know, I, uh, I got a little help from the gene pool. <laughs> and before we get on to computer games, I understand that you were attracted to gaming and that was good old pen and paper tabletop gaming at quite an early age. Can you just tell us about that and, and how that experience was important in your later computer-based ventures? 
As a kid, I noticed that my brain was on fire when I was interacting in play. And this was the most noticeable if there was some kind of a board game or card game that required strategy and resource management and negotiations. You know, I, I really got excited about it. And I was particularly drawn to things that could simulate something that was more part of the adult world. And so that could be a, 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 something like a sports simulator where uh, I remember as a, a fairly early, I found a, a, one of the early sports games where you had athletes with little discs and their name on them and pie slices around the disc of different outcomes. And you'd, you'd put them on a spinner and you'd spin it and see if uh, your guy, uh, you know, uh, scored a goal or hit a home run. And uh, that, that was kind of the beginning of uh, realizing that I was the kind of person that was going to really love games like that so much because they allowed me to do things in kind of an adult world. And, uh, you know, that kind of, it goes from there to games like Dungeons and Dragons and, and more elaborate uh, sports simulations. By the, and by the time I was a teenager, I was uh, starting to design and invent my own games. Okay. Uh, and then when did you actually first get your hands on a computer then? Yeah, so that was around 1970, and it, it was because my dad took me to a friend's house. He had a really brilliant uh, colleague that they worked together in a company that made scientific instruments. And <clears throat> this guy, Lane Houck, who, would, who later became the lead game designer for a, a arcade game company called Gremlin. And one of the game genres that he basically invented, uh, he, he called uh, his debut game in that genre, it was called Blockade. And I'm sure you could look it up and find images of the arcade version of it. But what you'll notice is that it's basically a game that became very popular on early uh, mo digital mobile phones in Europe called Snake. And it was pre-installed on a lot of uh, the uh, European phones. Uh, he basically invented that genre. So this is a very talented guy. And here it is back in 1970. And he had spent a, a huge amount of money to get a PDP-8 kit and it's basically a big box with a bunch of switches and flashing lights on it. And he's got it hooked up to a KSR 33 terminal. And that thing had a really clunky keyboard on it. And you'd stick a roll of yellow paper on it and it would spool the paper kind of like a, a typewriter. And it had a impact printer pounding out uh, the, the letters. But basically he could talk to his computer from that keyboard and then the computer could tell him stuff to print out. And he had cobbled together a really simple game where you're trying to guess uh, four, <clears throat> uh, four letters. Uh, there's a, there was a board game later on um, uh, using that same gameplay model called Mastermind uh, with uh, different colored yeah. pegs. But uh, yeah, it just really, uh, it helped me understand something that I'd already noticed. These, these more elaborate games, particularly sports simulation games that I love, they were really hard to manage. You know, it's also true if any, for any of you that have played Dungeons and Dragons, it's a lot to manage, a lot to administer because you don't have a computer. And then as soon as you find out about computers, you go, aha, it'll just put all that stuff in the computer. And <clears throat> I had noticed that my friends would sometimes uh, engage and want to do these really geeky games with me, but other friends would sort of drift off and go watch television because it was more visually dynamic. And I, and I began to realize when I saw the computer that we can make these kinds of games on computers and then have pretty pictures on the screen like television. 
and then everybody will be able to do it. And of course, it only took 50 years, but now that's true. <laughs> so actually, your very first impression of a computer was gaming. That was, that was one of the very first things you saw in that, that early, what we now call snake. So you immediately yeah. made the connection between these very serious business or academic machines and, and a potential for gaming. Well, you know, I guess to be really clear there, uh, you could go to an arcade uh, around the same time and you would have stumbled into the very first arcade games in the early 1970s. And you could see that as a form of amusement. Uh, but I was never really attracted to computers to just be a way to kill time and be amused. I wanted it to be mm -hmm. more interesting than that. So I always really thought of it as uh, simulations of something more sophisticated and immersion in uh, you know, sophisticated narratives where you felt like you were in your own movie. And I, and I really saw it as a new art form and, and that it would become a new medium. Okay. So th this was something uh, entertaining, but certainly more serious than the mm. simple Pong games that we were seeing of the, th through the 70s, because we had the first generation of, of home video game consoles coming through then. And as you said, the arcade machines. But as yet, the, the home computer market was, was non-existent. Uh, we're talking about, as you say, PDPs and terminals to remote mainframes. So when did you start to piece together that there might be an opportunity for you in a as yet non-existent home microcomputer market? Well, in particular, I was a football fan and the best board game with cards that simulated football, it wasn't very realistic. It didn't really capture the essence of how strategy really works in football. And I was a football player. I had uh, aspirations to be a football coach. My best friend actually did become a football coach and I was a, you know, pretty serious about it. And I thought, you know, I can make a better game than this. So that first game, it was a board game. It had cards, dice, charts. So again, it was kind of like the D&D &D equivalent, but for football. And uh, I borrowed a little money from my dad. I was, again, still a teenager. And I, I uh, got the parts made. I assembled it. I sold it through the mail. And of course, I lost every penny. You know, it was, it was, it was a few thousand dollars, but it was uh, an incredible experience for me because number one, I was so excited uh, being the creator of this thing and bringing it to the world and enjoying the experience of being an entrepreneur. And I realized, dang, I want to do this again. But then I also uh, was really frustrated that my baby had been stillborn. I mean, basically, if you invent something and you can't uh, keep it alive, uh, it really feels like a death in the family. And I thought, you know, I think I should probably learn more about business before I try to do this again. And then it was not long after that, that I, I uh, heard enough about computers and a colleague of mine at a summer job in Los Angeles, he had actually stumbled into the very first computer retail store. It was called The Computer Store. A guy named Dick Heiser had started it. And my colleague went in there and they, they were basically allowing you to rent computer terminals and you could take a terminal home and it would cost you like $10 an hour to hook it up to your, your company's uh, mainframe computer. And I started thinking about it and I had also heard about the invention of the first microprocessor. Again, this is in the mid seventies. I thought, wow, uh, home computing is gonna happen. When will it be okay for me to start my own computer game company? And uh, after I heard this, this stuff from my colleague, I, I sat at my desk with a piece of paper and I started sketching it out and trying to imagine okay, the cost of this stuff has to come down and there have to be enough users in homes 
uh, that you can actually make a game and sell it to enough people. And I came to the conclusion that I should start my company seven years later in 1982. And that is exactly what I did. That's when I founded Electronic Arts. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I mean, during this period, we did have the early consoles. The Atari 2600 came out. Um, did you ever consider these consoles as an option or were you very specific that you had to wait for the, the home microcomputers to come through? Well, I, I recognize the, uh, an enormous technical difference between the machinery that can be in an arcade, which can cost several thousand dollars because it's going to be there for years, you know, uh, accumulating uh, money. So there are things you can do there that maybe aren't going to happen in the home for a while. And then also the, uh, the early consoles were very limited because they needed to keep the price low enough to be considered a toy. And they didn't have very much memory. They didn't have much processing power. And the uh, to save costs, they didn't want to have a read-write uh, storage device. Uh, you know, the early personal computers, you had a uh, you had a floppy disk. Of course, you had cassette tape before that, which was really horrible. But uh, floppy disks were pretty good. Tapes for a long time here in the UK. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we EA actually put some games on tapes uh, in in the UK in the um, early to mid '80s. And I remember a reviewer of one of the uh, uh, even the games on the floppy disk, the Commodore floppy disk was also pretty darn slow loading uh, games. And they, they accused the Commodore floppy disk of being so slow that it was almost only slightly faster than typing the program in by hand. <laughs> but that's what an audio cassette felt like. I mean, that really took forever. But at any rate, uh, uh, it costs money to have a disk drive, whether we're talking about a floppy disk or a CD-ROM drive or a DVD, that costs money. And so the early consoles just couldn't do it. And instead, they would put the program on a uh, little circuit board with a gold-plated edge connector and have some chips on there. But man, that stuff's really expensive to manufacture, and it's going to be very low memory capacity. And you can't write anything there. You can only read it. And then you're plugging it into the game board. And again, for me, it was like, well, that's just too limiting. Yeah, I, we can't really creatively express ourselves and do the kind of sophisticated things that we know are possible. And the, uh, the first really mass market console that did a lot of volume was the uh, Atari 2600, also known as the Atari VCS, Video Computer System. That machine only had six sprites. So you could literally have the equivalent of like six, uh, the letter A has more pixels in it than one of those sprites did. But imagine I can have six letter A's, that's it. That's all I get, but that's enough for Pong. And, you know, there you know, certainly plenty of other clever games like Defender that were decent enough and were kind of fun amusement. But that machine also only had 128 bytes of memory. And you notice I didn't say kilobytes or megabytes. It was just literally count them on your fingers and toes. So just, there wasn't much space in there for anything. So whereas uh, around the same time, late seventies, you've got, you have, you have computers like the Apple II that have, uh, you know, 64 kilobytes, 64,000 bytes of RAM memory that you can read and write. And then you have a floppy disk that's got even more storage and you can uh, store things on it and you can save your game state and build things and save them. I mean, man, that's just, that just opens up a whole new world. And, you know, we just want, we wanted from the beginning, I just wanted from the beginning to make things that were more sophisticated that could take full advantage of that. And during the 1980s was, you know, just willing 
to wait for the market to grow and more of these machines to be sold and for them to get better and cheaper. And they, they certainly did that over the course of the 80s. But it was it was a long haul. It was tough. The mid 80s were kind of brutal. Yeah. And you mentioned how much you were into your sports. So is it fair to, to say that you didn't spend that much time actually down at the arcades in the 70s? Did that not, not interest you quite as much as the sports? Well, I was certainly paying attention to it, but uh, I didn't think that was a market I wanted to get into because you had to manufacture hardware. And I also didn't think that ultimately that kind of gameplay was that meaningful for our society. I, I just always had a higher social purpose. And I, I, I recognized uh, the social benefit of play. You know, if you think about it, uh, in social life, we need to have something to talk about. And uh, some of us are introverted or half of us around the world are introverted. And that's one of the reasons why online games and mobile games and network games are so popular is that introverts can be anonymous and they don't have to worry about what they're wearing. Uh, and, you know, you, you just have these opportunities to have social connections around something to do, which can be playing a game together. And that takes the pressure off needing to have something to talk about. I mean, so, you know, extroverts may feel comfortable going into a bar and meeting strangers, but, you know, introverts are a little more shy and a little more cautious about that. And, okay, let's play a game and let's connect that way. And I just always, always felt that about uh, playing games when I was a kid. And I just always cared about multiplayer games right from the beginning. And you might remember or, or know that uh, two of the very first games that we released, one of them was Archon, still a classic two-player game. And, and then Mule, you could have four players and you were doing stuff simultaneously on an Atari 800 that had four joystick ports with four players. How cool was that? Uh, an experience you'd get in very few, even arcade machines at the time. So mm -hmm. yeah, very cool. Many of you, of course, know you, many people, of course, know you as the founder of EA, but you mentioned the Apple II there, which came out in 1977, I think it was. Yes. And you managed to get yourself extremely close to the Apple II because before you founded EA, you were one of the earliest employees at Apple Computers, joining them in 1978. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, uh, I think it's just useful to remember that uh, I wanted to get better prepared to start my own game company. And I thought, well, I want to go work in another company that has good leadership so I can learn how to run a business. But I want that company that I work for to be selling computers into homes because that's, you know, something that's got to happen. Uh, the irony is that when I got to Apple, we, we only had 25 office workers in the whole company. We had another 25 guys on a production line in the back. And we were only selling a couple hundred hobby machines that were very expensive every month. And literally, uh, at the very start uh, of my employment there, my boss, who was the chairman of the board, had basically lined up the money to uh, get Apple funded and was also running marketing. He said, uh, hey, uh, Tripp, you know something about business. Uh, I want you to go figure out how we can sell these to businesses. And that had not happened yet. And so I was the guy that uh, I brought the first spreadsheet into Apple. I put together the first a field training program for dealers to help prepare them so they could sell computers to businesses. But I think the most valuable thing I did there was I recognized that the, the big opportunity for Apple was professional desktops, not just doing accounting. Because uh, we, we um, uh, in, in the research that I was doing about the uh, history of computers and accounting applications is that you had big mainframe computers that used 
big, big corporations that use mainframe computers to do accounting. And then mini computers came along and that allowed medium sized companies to do their accounting. And then small business computers costing maybe $30,000 had come along where even smaller companies could do their accounting. But frankly, uh, really, really small businesses, to have them buy a personal computer and do their accounting on it, you were dealing with two big impediments. The first was, these are people that are not very sophisticated about accounting. And secondly, these are people that are definitely, they don't know anything about computer technology at that time, which was very rough around the edges. Whereas the professional financial analyst that's, uh, that figures out how to use uh, a spreadsheet to get some financial analysis uh, insight, they suddenly have colleagues all over the floor, all over the building they're in that want to know how they did it. And that person becomes the, uh, uh, the monk, the uh, proselytizer that's going to let people know that they're going to come back to his office. They're going to see that he's got this Apple II and what he's doing with it. And uh, the next thing we knew, we could, we could have a thousand customers in that building. And there's a funny story there where, uh, you know, I was working very closely with Steve Jobs to plan the next generation, which, you know, ended up being expressed through the uh, Macintosh. And uh, basically uh, that led me to arrange to bring the first mouse into the company and to be one of the advocates for using the mouse and creating a WYSIWYG, uh, you know, user experience and did a tremendous amount of work there. But uh, uh, the, uh, uh, next gen thinking, of course, was uh, a lot of fun. That was very exciting, and you know, again, it just came back to the fact that uh, these professionals—they uh, were uh, technically savvy and motivated enough to figure out how you deal with this in the early stages, even before we'd made it easier for a mass market. And if I knew somebody down the hall was more technically oriented, then I could go buy an Apple II, and then they would help me deal with it if there was any technical troubleshooting. Uh, I needed help with, and that, that just became an enormous market. And then, of course, when we're, we're when we're getting ready to bring out that next gen, uh, that would really take the PC market to a higher level. Yeah, I remember one time I was uh, meeting in Cincinnati with Procter and Gamble. It's one of the biggest corporations in America, and uh, I was talking to the head of the uh, IT department that basically manages all computing in the corporation. And uh, he was really uptight and negative about Apple because, of course, a lot of it had come in uh, independent of his organization. And he was really just managing the IBM mainframe. And, and he was in denial about the takeover of personal computing. And I knew there were a whole lot of Apple IIs in this building. It's a huge office tower. And, uh, and I said, well, how many uh, Apple IIs, how many personal computers have you bought in your department to evaluate to see what you can do with them in the corporation? And he, has, he said, none. And then he gives me all these reasons why he just thinks personal computing is a terrible idea, okay? And then he just said, wow, uh, that's really crazy because I know there's a lot of Apple IIs in this building. And I just asked him, uh, how many Apple IIs are in this building? And he said, about 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> so here's this guy, he's got 5,000 of his employees saying that this is happening and you better get with the program. And he's still in denial about it. Shocking, <laughs> shocking. <laughs> so you, you were right at the forefront there, seeing what the Apple II could do, seeing the huge uptake of the Apple II and how successful it was. And also you mentioned you had the insights into, uh, I guess perhaps you saw some of the Lisa and then through to what became the Macintosh. So you could see what was coming down the pipeline. 
were you tempted to put the plans that you had to create a, a gaming company on ice and, and stick around at Apple? Would that would that have worked for you? Well, uh, you know, uh, frankly, when I went to Apple, I thought that I would stay there about a year. And it was so exciting. It was such an amazing company. We were doing such amazing, amazing things that uh, it made it attractive to stick around just because I, I was working with such a brilliant leadership team. And I was always in the room when we made the most important decisions in the company. And, and I, you know, I started getting involved in projects that were going to take a long time to finish. And I really very much wanted to have a sense of completion around things. So that's why I ended up staying there as long as I did. And it, and it was four years, but then the calendar turned to 1982 and I realized, dang, um, it's really time. And I, I've, I, I, I had seen other game companies get started. And I realized, yeah, I'm actually kind of arriving late to the party. I really need to get on with it. Oh, so great. you were seeing the other other companies start to, to crop up. Um, you mentioned lots of good practices at, at Apple. You were obviously seeing some really good examples of management and learning a lot while you were there. But uh, let, let, let's kind of flip the question on his head, because I, I think a lot of valuable lessons are learned from things going wrong or going badly. So b before you leave Apple and we move on to EA, what are some of the bad habits or some of the negatives that you perhaps took from Apple that you vowed not to repeat in your own business ventures? Is there anything you could share with us? Well, you know, I think from a strategy standpoint, what stands out is that when I started at Apple, we sold our computers to six regional distributors that covered different states. Mm -hmm. And then they had to resell them to the uh, this brand new retail activity of uh, selling personal computers. And there were some mom and pop stores that had started up to just sell computers. And they were uh, relatively uh, amateur and unprofessional in some cases. And then, you know, we were pushing them into department stores. We were trying to push them into uh, consumer electronics stores. And we, we, would, we would just try to get uh, anybody we could find to sell them. But the distributors couldn't keep up with our growth. They didn't have enough access to capital to buy enough inventory. And we, you know, about two years in, uh, we, we realized, you know, uh, we really need to sell directly to retail. Right. And we've got the financial resources, but you know, uh, you know, we went public in 1980. You know, that, so I, it was about two and a half years into my time with the company, and it, it was kind of after that where we realized, okay, we can afford to do this. Let's let's make this change. And it was brutal because in one day we went from having six customers to having like 3,500 customers, and and then some of the distributors sued Apple. We ended up having to acquire. Uh, at least at least one or two of them, and it was complete chaos. And and then as I'm thinking about electronic arts and the principles around which I'm going to found and build the business, I realized that hey, I'm trying to make a new kind of Hollywood, and uh, I need to study Hollywood. So I'm reading books about it. I'm using my network to develop contacts that I can talk to about Hollywood. I even went and visited Hollywood, and I'm realizing that these guys they all sell directly to retail. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to have their brand as close to, they want to get their marketing efforts and their brands as close to the customer as they can. And they, they want to get the feedback loop of having that direct access. And if you're in retail, you have more ability to do promotions and merchandising and get more shelf space if you're more actively involved uh, than if you just ship it to a distributor and cross your fingers and hope that they care enough to, to support you. 
And so I just realized, okay, electronic cards, we're just going to do it that way from the very beginning because that's what Hollywood does. And it was so painful for Apple to, when Apple switched to that. I didn't want to go through that kind of pain again. So I, I went through a different kind of pain instead because it was like pulling teeth, trying to convince individual mom, mom and pop stores in the early 80s to buy from us directly. They were so habituated to getting every, everything from a big yeah, distributor. Yeah, right. So a very important lesson that you, you took with you and armed with that knowledge. You mentioned that you set up EA in 1982. Um, to create what you call a new Hollywood. I really like that turn of phrase. A new Hollywood was was being created by you. When you set up the new company, was this a self-funded startup or, or did you find interest and investment in those new contacts that you'd made to create this video game company? So before I started it, I, I went to visit uh, a very famous venture capitalist that I'd heard about because I just wanted to take his temperature. And he was sufficiently encouraging that I thought, okay, it really is time to leave Apple and get going on this. And it's nice to know that uh, he's being encouraging because I'm gonna probably get to a point later when I wanna raise money from professional institutional investors, venture firms. But when I founded it, I just funded it myself. And so for, the, for that first year, 1982, uh, basically I was paying for everything. And, you know, so I, I, I was providing, I was providing all the equipment. I was paying uh, all any payments that went to any developers. I was paying salaries for employees. You know, that was all uh, just out of my pocket, you know, the rent, uh, et cetera. And then it wasn't until the very end of that year that we actually closed a uh, venture capital funding. Okay. Round. So that was at the end of 82 that you closed that. And then was development of games, um, did you hit the ground running? Did you have games ready to, to push out there from the very start? Or, or did, did that come a bit later? Did it take time to start to develop your first releases? So while I was still at Apple, of course, I'm, I'm working on this revolutionary new user interface with uh, icons and windows and you know, bitmap graphics. And uh, there, there were, that's, what, that's when I realized that the best software engineers really are artists. And that's, that's what led me into realizing, okay, so this is going to be a business like a Hollywood business. And I'm going to build a system for helping organize and support these artists and help them make better games and get them to be uh, appreciated uh, by the public. And so uh, I, I was starting already the last couple of years I was at Apple. I was you know going to things like the uh, first West Coast Computer Fair. I was uh, going to... Uh, any kind of gaming, a gathering of gamers. And, and I was uh, uh, reading the, the hobby magazines that began to emerge and just beginning to become aware of, well, okay, who, who am I gonna be able to go talk to about uh, becoming their publisher? And I, I was specifically targeting a guy named Bill Budge. So Bill Budge actually came in and worked at Apple for six months and he was able to see what we were doing, which wasn't publicly known yet. And then he was able to go off and uh, use some of those ideas in the uh, uh, a game that we ended up publishing together called Pinball Construction Set. And Pinball Construction Set kind of blew people's minds because they didn't even know yet about the, uh, the whole user experience that Apple was crafting uh, that, uh, you know, it, it yeah, you know, made its public debut, I guess, in 83 on the Lisa and uh, 84 on the Mac. And, uh, and they of course got copied by uh, 
Microsoft with Windows. Uh, but uh, in a way, Pinball Construction said just sort of ran out in front and called it a parade. And uh, Bill, Bill uh, was someone that I'd gotten to know while he was working at Apple. And I actually went and explained to him, hey, I'm starting this thing. Here's the concept. Uh, I'm trying to design this so that you guys like you can focus on creating your game. And we'll give you the best tools to help you do that. And then we'll take care of uh, helping you with the, the, with the editing and refinement of it, which might, might, might involve uh, uh, needing to provide you with some sound effects libraries and you know, testing. And, and then we can even, if you don't want to do it, we'll help get, a, a, get it ported, say, from the Apple II to the Commodore 64 or to the Mac. Uh, and then we'll, we'll basically uh, uh, get you all this publicity and we'll get your product in much bigger distribution and uh, we'll, we'll go take over the world. And, and he was a tough nut to crack. And I thought, you know, Bill, uh, I kind of started this company for you. And if you don't want to do it, then what the hell am I doing? And I'm not sure this is going to work without you. So I'm, I just literally, I'm going to get down on my hands and knees. I'm going to beg you. I'm begging you to come aboard. And what do we need to do to make this happen? And he, he finally uh, uh, agreed. And, and, then, and then, you know, once, once you have um, at least one good one, then they become a reference point for anybody else that you're talking to. But in that same time period, I was meeting uh, uh, John, um, John Freeman and Ann Westfall. I'm sorry. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm getting confused here. I think the um, development team they created was called Westfall. And it was uh, combining parts of their last names uh, together. And John and Ann were fantastic. And, you know, they were the ones that, uh, you know, John did the design of Archon and, and uh, programmed it uh, with some help from uh, Paul Ritchie. And, and uh, uh, there, there were people like that that you, you could find out about. And occasionally we'd get a, um, a little tidbit of information like uh, Mark Termel, really, really talented guy. And Mark has had a really great career in the game industry. He did a lot of uh, famous arcade games for Midway and Bally. Uh, but back then he had, he had done this uh, really simple, fun little Apple II game uh, that was, uh, you know, getting some sort of hobby distribution. And I only knew one thing. I only knew two things about Mark Termel. I knew his name and I knew he was from Illinois, the state of Illinois. And I had no way of contacting him. And so I told uh, one of my producers, look, uh, we, we need to track down Mark Termel. Uh, and, and they said to me, well, uh, how do I call him? I don't have the phone number. I said, call every area code in the state of Illinois on directory assistance and get all the numbers of all the Mark Termels in the state of Illinois and keep calling until you find uh, the one that made that game. I think the game was called Sneakers. And I loved it. I was a huge fan of that game. Uh, as it turns out, we didn't end up making a game with Mark Tumell <laughs> at that time. Uh, but uh, indeed, we were having conversations like that, and a lot of great things uh, came from it. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised the name Bill Budges come up because that's come up um, in in various interviews in the past. Highly respected name. I've heard um, Steve Wozniak speak very highly of him yourself now and many others. So yeah, that that was a, a big boon to to get hold of him, and and then it sounds like you. You did the heavy lifting to allow him the space to be creative in his game design and support him. Uh, and that would have involved things like packaging because this was the era of Ziploc bags on pegs, um, you know, uh, cover art, 
printed at home, photocopied, put in a Ziploc bag and, and put in a computer shop. And um, what you came up with was something quite unique. I've got an example here in Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Simulator in a, in a kind of LP mm -hmm. style piece of packaging. How did this come about? Because nobody else was doing this. Yeah, so uh, right from the beginning, uh, I was trying to uh, operate as a Hollywood style entertainment company, but I also was trying to be very cost conscious. And I thought, well, shoot, record albums, you know, you have that big LP uh, cardboard uh, album format. And I thought, shoot, uh, these are these are for sale in retail stores for, you know, $8. It surely can't cost that much to make these packages. So we ended up, so I said, okay, uh, let's do packages. At, let's, let's just use albums. Why not? You know, there's, they're in high volume. They must be really cheap. So we actually went to the world's largest manufacturer of record albums. And they told us, uh, yes, they're very cheap. So that's good news. But hey, you can actually make it even cheaper if you use less paper. <laughs> so why don't you guys decide exactly how you want the album to be, and then we'll make it for you and it'll be even cheaper. Yeah. And so th that's where we kind of schemed up the uh, folding thing where you've got a slot on the side where you can stick in a manual. And then you've got a, a, a slot that's on the inside where you put the disc. Uh, and then you shrink wrap it so the disc doesn't fall out. Of course, there ended up being all kinds of clever ways people would steal the discs. And uh, sometimes people would buy a product, they'd take it home, they'd make an illegal copy of the disc, and they'd uh, just bring the thing back and return it to the store and say, oh, I don't want this, I want my money back. And then the uh, retailer would send it back to us, but the disc wouldn't be there you know, because <laughs> the uh, consumer would get the disc and return the package. And then one time, you know, the, the early floppies, they were five and a quarter inch floppies. You know, that was the size. Yeah. And one time a retailer returned to us and said, yeah, you got to give me uh, my money back because the consumer said this game didn't work. It's flawed. It's defective. And so we gave the guy a refund. And lo and behold, yeah, there you go. There's a floppy disk. Lo and behold, this consumer had returned the thing. And those packages were eight inches by eight inches. And there's, again, a big slot on the side where you can shove something in. And we were putting a manual in there. But this particular consumer had taken a mini computer, uh, eight, eight inch floppy disk. We never made a game on an eight inch floppy disk. But this person thought they needed to fool the retailer by returning the game with a disk. And they shoved an eight inch disk into that slot. It was just a blank disc, but the retailer just sent it back to us and demanded payment. Say, look, yeah, your thing's defective. You got to repay me. We interrupt this program for an important message. Did you know that you can enjoy even more retro tea breaks with the official retro tea breaks book from rmcretro.store? It's a beautifully bound collection of interviews from the pioneers of game development, transcribed and expanded upon in more detail with our guests' help. Extras include release timelines, pixel art by sensible software Stu Cambridge, and full color photos from our guests' lives in gaming. Pick one up now at rmcretro.store. So you've got the company off the ground. You've got your first releases. You've got it all packaged up nicely. Um, how were those first releases received? Did everything go as planned? Were you hitting targets from, from the start or was it a bit shaky? How were, how were the early days of EA? Yeah, you know, it was very, very hard because the market really wasn't that big. 
And we didn't have thousands of employees that could go convince all these stores to start doing business with us. And you couldn't supply the distributors and also compete for the retailer's business. If you were supplying a distributor, they would have just undercut our price. They would have offered more favorable terms to the retailer and killed us off. And so we couldn't sell the distributors, which meant we had to do all the heavy lifting ourselves. And it was just a slow pace of convincing, particularly thousands of small retailers to get on board with us. And sometimes you have to call on them multiple times. And I, I remember uh, uh, one retailer in particular, again, a fairly small retailer. I, I went and visited, I, I was constantly visiting uh, retailers. And the first time it might be, uh, we, uh, we don't, you're too little, uh, you're too new, um, I'm, I'm not interested. And then the second meeting would be, uh, oh, okay, I'm starting to get a little more interested, but uh, I, I buy all my games from this distributor. Do you sell them? No, we don't. Well, then I'm not interested. And then the third meeting would be a little different because they would say, oh, I've heard about you guys. Oh, really? How did you find out? Well, I read about you in Time Magazine last week, and I saw Time Magazine talking about the Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one -on -one basketball game, and that sounds cool. And then also I had a customer, somebody came in my store last week, and they wanted pinball construction set, and I didn't have it. And so I called my distributor, and they didn't have it. Well, that's right, because we only sell direct to retail, but we'd be happy to sell you right now pinball construction set and Dr. J and some other games. And they said, all right, I'll take one person, uh, I'll take one uh, pinball game because I already took a deposit from that customer. <laughs> so he already paid for it. I got to go over that. Uh, and then I'll take one of the, one of the basketball games. Okay. And then, and then you finally come back later and they'd, they'd uh, be rolling now doing reorders and taking on more of the product line, but it was just literally bit by torturous bit and uh, super painful. And meanwhile, that album packaging, uh, the media, they really loved what we were doing. And, you know, that, that article in Time Magazine, they only covered two companies at CES in that article. And the other one was Microsoft. You know, so there's a picture of me and there's a picture of Bill Gates. You know, this is 1983. There's, there's, they're not talking about anything else. That's how much we stood out. And we were a tiny, tiny, tiny little company. And, uh, you know, there were these enormous booths and, you know, walls of competing product 30 feet high from really big companies like Texas Instruments. And, you know, it, uh, it was kind of fascinating that we had a message that was so refreshing and so new that the media wanted to talk about it. And then customers would go into retail and ask for it and, and they could find it. And, and the, uh, the album covers, it was interesting what happened there because over 20 of our competitors copied that exact album cover. So for a while it was kind of industry standard, but the problem was as more and more games were crowding on shelves, you wanted the thing to face out where people could see the cover. But then what happened is they'd have so much inventory, they had to make room, more room by turning it sideways. So you've just got that. That's called, spine, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what it means when you get, it's called spined out, you know, all I'm seeing is the spine. And that's when we realized that, oh, dang it, we're going to have to let go of this and go to a wider box so that there's a spine that you can read. Ah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so slowly, inch by inch, you were gaining momentum, getting the trust 
uh, of the stores at first to buy one game at a time um, through word of mouth from customers wanting your product? Well, you know, and I'll just, I just got to jump in here and just say that if you make a really great game and it's both original and it's high quality, uh, people are going to tell other people about it. You know, you're going to get good reviews and that's going to help inform people about it. And that's how you build your reputation over time. The, the very best kind of marketing. Yeah. Uh, be honest with us, Trip. Did you ever make those phone calls to the computer stores to say, have you got this game in stock? Why haven't you got this game in stock <laughs> anonymously? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm not reluctant to do things like that. I, you know, when I think back in my career, uh, maybe the most example like that was when I was making mobile games. Okay. Uh, we, we had competitors, uh, like, you, you know, the name Gameloft, uh, their Gameloft, you know, which was spun out of, uh, Ubisoft. They were a really cutthroat, uh, competitor. And I, I've literally, uh, you know, the five Gimo brothers that started Ubisoft, I've never met tougher SOBs in the game industry. They were, <laughs> those guys are really tough and they're, they're really hard to do business with. And they're really tough competitors. I, I just always had a lot of respect. Uh, but uh, Gameloft started doing something really distasteful. They would go to a place like Mexico and be near the U.S. border. They would uh, get a bunch of phones and they would have low-cost employees go onto the uh, early carrier uh, decks, you know, back in the uh, days of uh, WAP and GSM, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Java phones. And, and they would basically go give really great, they would run up the count of user user reviews with perfect scores for their games. And then they would trash our games. Oh, wow. And, and uh, it's like, hey, you got you to fight against that. And then it became even more important uh, when the app stores uh, showed up. And so I felt like, well, shoot, uh, the way the app stores work is that every one of us gets to have a vote. So by God, I'm enti- I got a phone. I'm entitled to post a review on my phone as myself saying that this game is great because that's what I think. And uh, I certainly encourage my employees to do the same. And I, and I basically point out my employees, this is an existential threat. If Gameloft is uh, artificially trying to convince me that the games that you're making suck, you know, you need to fight for your very life. And I'm not going to order you to do it, but hey, I'm just suggesting that we probably need to put the word out that we actually really like our own games. <laughs> I, I see nothing wrong with that whatsoever, Trip. Nothing wrong at all. <laughs> um, 1983 now, um, this is the year of the great North American video game crash or Atari shock as the Japanese call that period. Did that have any impact on you at all because you were moving in the, in the microcomputer circles? It did because a lot of retailers abandoned the category. I, re- I remember our first salespeople asking me, uh, so uh, how do we find retailers that might carry our games? And I said, oh, just look them up in the yellow pages. There's a whole category of the yellow pages about video games. And they said, yeah, well, we already did that. And we contacted every one of those retailers and none of them are selling video games anymore. Wow. So there was just a cratering. Uh, and it, a whole bunch of bad things happened. So the media basically said, oh, uh, the king is dead. I mean, long, you know, it, it's, uh, this category is over with. It was a hula hoop. Uh, nobody cares anymore uh, just because Atari was struggling. And that mm-hmm. was just not true and unfair. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it diminished the uh, investor interest in the category. But I was doing something very different than what Atari was doing. 
And, and again, you're tr just trying to get the word out to make sure people start to appreciate that difference. And it took, it took time. And, and uh, you really had to just go rebuild retail one day at a time, one store at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly bounced back um, after that period. And uh, if we fast forward now a little bit to, to 1985, EA appeared to be a, a huge believer in the Commodore Amiga computer right out of the gate with the Amiga 1000. Why did you jump on board with that platform? Because presumably the Apple II and other machines were still doing well for you at that time. What, what was it about the Amiga that appealed to you? Well, I'm going to anchor the story around the game Marble Madness that many of us uh, are yes. familiar with. Uh, many of us have played it in the arcade and, you know, maybe played it on a home computer or another platform. So I, I mentioned earlier about my involvement with Steve Jobs and among other things, you know, selecting the microprocessor that we've used in the next generation, which is the Motorola MC68000. Mm -hmm. And we understood what a great processor that was. And as soon as, uh, and you know, basically the Lisa was based on that, the Mac was based on that, uh, Sun Microsystems, when they started their workstations were based on it. And not too long after that, uh, even arcade games that could really spend a lot of money on custom hardware, even they were basing their systems around the 68,000. And so uh, I was super excited when I heard about the Amiga because it had a 68,000, it had a sound chip, it had a really good graphics processor, and it, it basically had the kind of multimedia features that I'd always uh, dreamed of, as well as, of course, the all-important two joystick ports. And so uh, these, th this was very much the kind of 16-bit machine that I knew uh, was gonna be possible because I'd worked on these kinds of 16-bit machines at Apple and enough years had gone by that now it can be a, a full color uh, experience, of, you know, with a great sound and it can be a, a cheaper uh, piece of equipment. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, initially Amiga is a standalone company. And, um, and before they were purchased by Commodore, I actually uh, ar arranged for Apple to talk to them about acquiring it. And I was really pushing hard on Apple to acquire it and got Mike Markula involved, who was uh, chairman of the board. And, you know, it, it just, they really didn't care about the consumer market. It's kind of ironic with today's uh, iPhones, but Apple was really preoccupied for most of their history with selling business equipment to businesses and being taken seriously as high-end, high-priced business equipment. And they just couldn't imagine having an inexpensive product in the home that wouldn't screw up their brand value. And of course, uh, they eventually got over that after the App Store launched. And it, even then it kind of took them by the surprise. And even to this day, Apple, they treat the game industry very poorly. Mm -hmm. And it's just unfortunate. They, uh, they turned out not to really, uh, uh, really know or understand games or really care about them or really care about gamers. I think that's actually still true today. So uh, that, that deal uh, wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to buy Amiga and be a competitor in the home. And so Commodore ended up acquiring it. But uh, I was totally all in on it. And I knew that whatever investment we made, I knew that it would have long-term technology value, that it would create a form of technical uh, debt for my competitors because they wouldn't be investing in the right scale of software development with the right tools and the right level of performance. 
And of course, I thought the Amiga would sell better than it did. But of course, you then get to uh, copycat platforms like the Atari ST. A few years after that, you get to the Sega Mega Drive. And then, of mm -hmm. course, uh, uh, Marble Madness gets created for the arcade on a machine with the uh, 68,000 processor in it. And we're able to get a license and we were able to put it on the Amiga, put it on the Atari ST and put it on the Sega Genesis. How fantastic mm -hmm. is that? Yeah, and, and it, it looks and plays arcade perfect on the Amiga. So yeah, it was a really great, a great port. Uh, and we saw EA publish titles, which will be very familiar to my audience on the Amiga and other platforms. Uh, they include Deluxe Paint, F-18 Interceptor, Populous, that one of course developed by Bullfrog Productions. Was there yeah. a criteria that, that you had in place that developers had to meet to work with you or were those relationships forged simply on the merits of the software that they presented to you? If you were impressed by what they showed you, was that a done deal? How, how did it all work, these relationships? Yeah, there was a whole combination of factors there. Obviously, if somebody has already finished something and they haven't put it in the market yet, if, uh, you know, if, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, then it's probably a duck and you're happy to have it. Uh, so that would occasionally happen. But, uh, you know, generally you're, you're earlier and sometimes the developer just has the idea and you're trying to determine, okay, uh, ideas are really uh, not worth that much. Everybody has ideas. You know, it's like Edison uh, with the 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And you, so you had to talk to the developer and try to figure out how determined is this person to make this thing a reality? And also, are they technically good enough? Are they uh, passionate enough and, and have, do they have enough insight about game design and gamers to really know how to design something that's gonna turn out to be fun and to stick with it and do all the hard work of polishing it and refining it until it's a really high quality product. And you know, my favorite uh, example of what I'm talking about is uh, uh, way back in 1983, uh, one of my producers brought uh, a 16-year-old in to meet me. And uh, he, what, he, what he said to me before the meeting was, uh, look, uh, this guy had a game. The game isn't worth publishing. But then he showed me this tool he uses to create music for his games. And I think we should publish the tool and turn it into a consumer product that helps you learn how to comp you know, be able to compose your own music and play, play music on your personal computer. And I thought, okay. And this, this kid was a genius and what he built was stunning. Uh, and uh, basically we thought, yeah, we can do something with this. And we ended up calling it Music Construction Set. And it got a feature article in Time Magazine. It was another opportunity for us to get into Time Magazine. And that developer, Will Harvey, went on to have a really great career. He ended up going back to school and getting a PhD in computer science from Stanford. Super, super talented guy. But he had the, the right qualities to make a successful product. And I was giving him all kinds of personal uh, editorial input about the user experience because of the expertise I had in that from my time at Apple. And uh, he was just eating it up. And so it was going to turn out to be a, a good companion product in this sort of construction set series. And uh, one day uh, when he thought he was finished with the game, you know, he, he submitted the game and my producer came and said, well, you know, Will's done. Uh, do you want to take a look at it before we put it into manufacturing? And I said, yes, I do. 
and I boot it up and I start fiddling around with it and I go, oh, this could be better. Oh, this would work better this way. And pretty soon I've got, <laughs> I don't know, maybe a half a dozen or 10 things I want to change. And uh, uh, so, so Will comes in and he's really pissed off thinking, what the hell, you know? And I said, look, Will, um, this stuff is really gonna make a difference. It's, it's really worth it to go do it. And he said, and, and so basically he goes off and he does it. And then he comes back in and he says, okay, I did everything that you wanted. Uh, are, you know, are we done yet? And he's, you know, he's been basically staying up for two days straight. He hasn't any sleep for ages. He's all bleary eyed. And, uh, and I said, well, let, let's just take a look. And I had another three or four refinements I wanted him to change. <laughs> and he just lost it. I mean, he's getting really furious. You told me that I only had to do this and it's already late and you promised and I did it and this is ridiculous. And I just looked at Will Harvey and I said, Will, you're right. You don't have to do anything else. You're right. But if you do these additional changes, it's gonna be a much more successful product. And he's got steam coming out of his ears and he just storms out of the office. <laughs> and several hours go by and he comes back in, he comes storming into my office and he slams the floppy disk on my desk and he says, okay, I did it. That's the kind of developer you're looking for. <laughs> unbreakable. It might make a lot of noise, but unbreakable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and the developers, I mean, you celebrated the developers. You, you put their names on their boxes. Um, I've got a pamphlet here, actually, from a game, which is down here. I don't know if you remember this one, Kings of the Beach Professional Beach Volleyball. And it has, has uh -huh. a pamphlet. In fact, I've even, it even came with a tattoo, a stick-on tattoo, which I've still got here unused. Um, right on. But in the, in the pamphlet that came with it, you've got all of your games listed, uh, 688, Attack Sub, um, uh, what else have we got? Mm -hmm. Jordan versus Bird one-on-one. -on -one. And a subtitle of every single game is the name of the developer. So uh, Zany Golf by Will Harvey. You know, you make a point right. of pointing out the names of the developers. Um, why did you choose to do that? What, what was the thinking behind behind doing that? Well, the, the core idea that I uh, came up with even while I was still at Apple that really became the, uh, the Rosetta Stone, the foundation of the company was that software is an art form and we're gonna recognize the developer as a software artist or a digital artist. And this, this is a new idea and we're gonna be able to build a whole new kind of professional industry around it. And that included the idea that the public ought to know uh, who are the artists that are making uh, the uh, games that they're playing and the products that they're using. So I really believe from that in the very beginning. And ironically, uh, you know, the media loved that idea, but the public didn't really care all that much. But I, I knew the idea made sense. It obviously just took more decades. But boy, uh, gamers sure know uh, about the best developers and the best developers are now celebrities. It just took a while. Sure, sure. You were just too early, <laughs> too early on that one. But celebrity endorsement. But it, was, well. you know, it was the right thing to believe in and the right thing to stick with. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And then celebrity endorsements, this, you know, this wasn't a new thing, celebrity endorsements, but perhaps new to the video game industry. And they feature heavily in EA games from your one-on-one -on -one basketball games through to John Madden, of course, the obvious one, and plenty more mm -hmm. like Chuck Yeager, the late, great Chuck Yeager, who we mentioned earlier. 
Was it difficult to persuade celebrities to associate with video games in those early days or were they just happy to take the money for the endorsements? Yeah, you know, in, in, in the very beginning, of course, uh, no celebrity had ever yet appeared in a video game or had their brand associated with a video game. And you had to have some way of even finding, you had to find somebody that knew somebody's agent and get the conversation started that way because you didn't have access. And I knew a lawyer that knew the lawyer that knew the agent for Julie Serving, Dr. J. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where it started. And to, uh, you know, basically Julius was kind of the ambassador for basketball. And he was just this incredible leader who, uh, you know, just had this radiant uh, image and position in, in the industry. And as a really, really uh, incredibly popular celebrity uh, globally. And, and he, he had a different set of values. Uh, he, he actually cared about uh, things that were meaningful to society. And he had uh, plenty of children and he was thinking about them. And I, I, I basically helped him understand that this was a new thing and it was gonna be of educational value to children, which I believe it is. And, and you can be part of something that's new. And so, so he was in fact intrigued. And then to make sure I closed the deal, I basically uh, gave him a little bit of stock in the company. Okay. And, and so you, you have this combination of the uh, agent thinking it was a good idea, it being a source of uh, revenue that's kind of unusual for athletes. Uh, you know, really uh, back then uh, the, uh, uh, sports industry, the, 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 uh, you know, the, an athlete might get a chance to uh, appear on television to promote a local, uh, car dealership on a regional television channel, but they weren't really involved in products and they, they didn't have sources of revenue. They didn't have meaningful sources of revenue other than their, uh, salary from, uh, as a player in the sport. And, and so, uh, anyway, I think, I think Dr. J was willing to do it because it, it felt kind of a, like a socially constructive thing and it fit into uh, him being an ambassador for basketball. What could be better than bringing basketball to people that where they can actually play as him? Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course uh, the uh, uh, licensing model that had to do with, uh, you, know, you know, getting some money in advance and getting a small royalty on each unit sold. You know, we offered the exact same terms to Larry Bird and his agent just had to hear from Dr. J's agent that, yeah, we're doing this and we want you to do it with us. And that kind of got the ball rolling. And then you've got that as something you can refer to because it was a good game and it was a successful game and it touched, uh, it did well on the charts. And, uh, and then it was just that much easier to go to the next step uh, for EA sports and other celebrities like uh, Chuck Yeager, or in the case of sports to go to the players union, because again, players unions were managing, they're negotiating about salaries, but they weren't really generating a lot of uh, merchandise revenue for players at that point. And again, this felt like a, 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 an emerging category and why not uh, get the ball rolling? And, and, uh, it, and they were actually a, a real pleasure to do business with because uh, we didn't have to overpay them. You know, it's gotten yeah. to the point now where everybody's more show me the money and the sure. amount of upfront money that people ask for to do almost anything, it's kind of sickening. You know, and, and pretty much everybody's for sale and nobody does anything uh, just because it's a, a good thing to do.
Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think often uh, celebrities, they don't understand that startups just don't have a lot of money to throw around. Yeah. Yeah. With Dr. J, you mentioned that you offered him a stock option. Obviously, you offered future celebrity endorsements, royalties, but did you ever repeat the offer of a stock option with anyone? Or was that just a, a one time thing that you had to do to get this off the ground? You know, I just did that once. And yeah. the uh, funny story that John Madden likes to tell, which, and this is true, is that uh, we'd already been working with him for years. But in 1989, when we filed to go public, I offered him the opportunity to buy some stock directly before the IPO went live. And and he uh, turned it down. <laughs> and of course, uh, thereafter, he made fun of himself for having done so. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll find out what happened after the IPO next, because that brings us on nicely to the end of the 80s. Um, and this is a period when Sega beat Nintendo to the punch with the release of their 16-bit console, the Genesis or the Mega Drive, as it was called here in the UK. And uh, many of us remember from that generation the EA game cartridges with the little colored tab on them. It really made them stand out as something different to the others. What changed that persuaded you then to move into the console market at the end of the, the 80s? Because you'd resisted it until that point. Yeah, so uh, at the end of the 80s, you know, I, w I was in conversation with pretty much all the hardware manufacturers in the world, whether they were making consoles or or uh, home computers or uh, other things that were at least related. And nobody was really thinking very much about audiovisual multimedia features. They were really focused on the office desktop market. And other, you know, so, so even a home computer in those days was really being purchased to be a home office computer. And it was gonna be an IBM compatible and mostly they were gonna buy flavors of IBM PCs that didn't have a sound chip, didn't have joystick ports. You know, we, we were big fans of, uh, here in America, uh, Radio Shack, the retail store chain, their parent company, Tandy, came out with thing, the king called the Tandy 1000, which uh, ironically, they tried to copy features from the IBM PC Junior, which failed. But the PC Junior had a sound chip and it had joystick ports. And it, it had a terrible memory bus limitation and other problems because they tried to cripple it. It had a chiclet keyboard. IBM was afraid the PC Junior would compete with the PC. Uh, so they really crippled it. Uh, what Tandy did was they made a full up legitimate PC with plenty of memory and plenty of horsepower, but they incorporated those more home friendly uh, features, but they just couldn't sell enough of them. And so there, there you are in the late eighties thinking, these products are too expensive. The, the number of users is too small. You know, we're we're a we're a nice little company. You know, at that point, you're you're uh, doing more than fifty million dollars a year in revenue, which in today's money would be over a hundred million. So it's a meaningful business. But I was looking for something more transformative, and that's when in 1988, Sega launched the Mega Drive in Japan. And okay, so here's a product that is being sold for less than $200. And it has a Motorola MC68000 and a processor we know and love. And we've got a whole library of products right now and tools mm -hmm. to, that allow us to very quickly do great things on machines anchored by a 68000 processor. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's got this consumer price point and, and they're a you know, solid enough uh, company. 
And I thought, you know, I just uh, don't want to enter into a draconian, uh, over-controlling, greedy Nintendo-style license agreement. What can I do about that? And and they were planning on bringing the uh, Sega Sega machine to the U.S. in 1989. And, of course, then it would come to Europe in 1990. That's how they used to do things. And I thought, okay, I've got some time here before this thing really rolls out. So let's bring some of these machines back from Japan and let's uh, let's study them and let's see if we think we can reverse engineer them. And if you do a clean room reverse engineering, it means that you can uh, you can under fair use copyright law, you can study how it works, including having program listings on the screen, which is a form of copyright infringement ordinarily. But if you're just trying to do it to figure out how the machine works and you don't profit yourself from having seen that copyright on the screen without their permission. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a really heroic activity because uh, you're really not allowed to take a lot of tools into the room. A clean room is a clean room. You go in there and you build things yourself and you start probing into the thing you're studying. And then when you come out of that room later, you can document how it works. And then that information can go to other developers, but you yourself, because you witnessed somebody else's copyright without paying them for it, without having their permission, you can't develop based on that information, but you can write the information down and other people can use it because when you write it down, that's your own copyrighted uh, piece of information. So this was real hero, courageous work. First of all, it's a very courageous thing to try to do. Secondly, you've got to convince some of your best engineers to go into that room and it's really tedious, difficult work. And then they, they, they know that they don't get to be in the parade. You know, yeah. later, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to make games based on what they learn. And that kind of sucks. But the, uh, for what it's worth, the guys that went in the room, uh, to me, they're some of the greatest heroes in the history of the game industry. And certainly for EA, like Steve Hayes, uh, comes to mind, uh, I'm thinking David Maynard, but I'm not, I can't remember for sure if uh, Dave went in there, but the other guy that's the biggest here is Jim Nichols, who was uh, an early game developer for us. And he'd become more of a tools guy and uh, extremely high IQ, really technically brilliant. And he's the one who really uh, put the uh, long hours and intense time in the clean room that finally got us over the hump and just uh, you know got the whole thing uh, sorted. And uh, so uh, he, he uh, <clears throat> kind of lives on in my heart for the uh, heroic work that he did there. And of course, once we had it figured out, we can make development tools, we can start projects. And so this is going on all throughout uh, the end of 88 into 89 and uh, into early 1990. And then we're getting ready to uh, launch our first games in June of 1990, one of which was Populous. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, uh, we were planning on doing this without a license because we technically didn't need a license. And I realized, you know, we're a public company now and I partly took the company public to get some cash to have on the sideline because I was doing this strategy. And I knew that, well, Sega might sue us and we're gonna need to have some extra cash to defend ourselves and prove our innocence. But I also thought just as a responsible CEO of a public company, I should probably at least take a shot at negotiating with Sega to see if we can be partners that in a reasonable arrangement instead of signing their standard agreement. 
And they'd been bugging me for a year by this time, trying to convince me to sign a conventional license and just go under their umbrella in a conventional fashion. And I had to take all these meetings with them and listen and nod and not reveal to them that behind the scenes were secretly figuring out their machine. And you know, <laughs> uh, so it was a, a treacherous time. So I called up the chairman of the board uh, and founder of Sega and uh, told him, hey, this is what we're doing. Uh, this We're going to announce this stuff at the June CES show. And we'd kind of like to talk to you and see if there's a way to be partners. And he started threatening me. He said, look, uh, you know, we're going to change the next version of the machine. So your stuff doesn't work. And uh, we're going to constantly confuse you to make your products uh, in inventory obsolete. You're going to waste a lot of money on the manufacturing costs. And, and uh, the litigation is going to be really expensive. It's going to batter your stock prices. It's going to be irresponsible for you to do your shareholders, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's a little bit like the big bad wolf is threatening to blow my house down, but I'm pretty sure I'm in the brick house. You know? uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so I, I just calmly say, okay, well, that's all very interesting, but you know, do you want to get together and talk about it? And he said, yes. So then I met with uh, more of the Sega executives and, and then I, I, I managed uh, in uh, clearly one of the highlights of my career, I managed to convince them to give us an extremely favorable contract. So basically we could do pretty much whatever we wanted. Uh, whereas a, a standard Nintendo license, which Sega is now by this time copying, you could only do five games a year. You had to let them manufacture them for you. You had to pay uh, a ridiculously high uh, price and really high license fee and, and the license fee all by itself, independent of the manufacturing cost of a cartridge, which is going to be around 10 bucks. The license fee is going to be another 10 bucks and it's going to work out to be kind of like the 30% tax that Apple charges now, which is really not healthy for the industry. So we didn't want to do any of that. And we wanted to make an unlimited number of games and control our own manufacturing. And so we fought and won all of that stuff. And, and then it came down to the question of, well, what are we gonna pay in royalties? And uh, I had agreed that we would pay $2 per unit, but I also was asking for a cap saying, once we've sold a million units, we're done. Don't have to pay any more royalties ever. And this became kind of a sticking point. And this was getting very close to, uh, we're now by, by this time, it's the middle of June. The CS show is, uh, Actually, I take it back, middle of May. So the CS show is only a couple of weeks away in early June. And everybody on my management team is saying, Trip, you've done such a fabulous job. Let's just take this deal and forget about the cap. And I basically explained to them, look, I'm pretty sure I can get this cap. And I'm, it's even worth it to wait and let them uh, file the lawsuit and let us go through the discovery process and deliver documents and start taking depositions. And once they see how determined we are and how fiercely we're fighting to just win the lawsuit, that's when they'll, they'll uh, accommodate us and, and agree. And I'm willing, if that's what it takes, that's what I'm willing to do. Well, uh, and they all rolled their eyes and, you know, but it was really basically my company and they supported me, uh, even though they all thought I was crazy. <laughs> and, and then I went off uh, to CES a day early uh, and closed that deal and got that done, documenting it. Uh, in well into the night so that the next morning when the show opened, we were able to announce ourselves as partners with that cap in place. And we blew through that in a matter of months 
And altogether, it probably saved uh, EA uh, something close to $50 million over the next five years. So that was a And there was a massive turning point that occurred in the value of the company. We went, the company went from being valued as a public company at about 60 million. Uh, within a couple of years, it was worth 2 billion. Wow. Wow. And that's when uh, John Madden realized the terrible mistake he'd made. <laughs> but uh, that cap that you'd agreed with them, then that was a cap across all of the games you produced. It wasn't on a per game basis. That was just a cap. For yeah, it was specific to the Sega, the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, it wouldn't apply to a platform later like the Saturn. Yeah. And, but it, yeah, all games sold anywhere. Wow. Wow, incredible deal. And, you know, it, it was obviously a calculated risk that you were confident in. There was some precedent in the early 80s, of course, with Activision, who decided to create their own cartridges for the Atari 2600. They settled out of court, which effectively legitimized their approach, but it did come at a cost of, of paying royalties to Atari. So, I mean, would that effectively, do you think, would that have been the worst case scenario that you might have ended up having to settle out of court and pay royalties? Or, or could it have got a whole lot worse for you? in that situation. Yeah, obviously, if you go through that lawsuit and a jury decides, yeah, you uh, uh, broke the copyright laws, your clean room wasn't quite clean enough, that, that would have been pretty devastating. <clears throat> and then you, you would have spent all that time in trouble and, and, and money, and you'd be back to having to take their standard deal. And yeah, that would have been uh, insanely expensive. Yeah, so you really were betting the farm on it. And uh, it was a great decision. It came through and uh, you conquered Sega. But then you stepped down, I believe, as CEO of EA in 1990. So, so what prompted this move? Well, by 1990, I was already looking ahead to the next uh, frontier. And I knew about uh, optical disc media. Uh, obviously, I knew plenty about 3D graphics and graphics processors and 32-bit <clears throat> computers, et cetera. And, and I was just really disappointed that the uh, rest of the hardware companies around the world, they just weren't um, really uh, going in the right direction. And I felt like, wow, um, I'm gonna be pretty much stuck with Sega and Nintendo. And Nintendo is going to have really big eyeballs as they see exactly what I've done to Sega. And all of these companies <laughs> are going to try to figure out how to batten down the hatches and make sure this never happens again. And I think, okay, so this is going to be really great for about four or five years, but what about beyond that? And that's when uh, I basically began to think, you know, um, maybe we're big enough, maybe we're strong enough, maybe I can put a consortium of partners together to create our own 32-bit uh, game industry standard. And of course, uh, that resulted in the 3DO and it resulted in uh, a new public company. And we had eight hardware licensees. We had over 900 software licensee companies. And it felt like, okay, you know, that you got a shot at it. But uh, I didn't really know when I committed to that plan that there was even going to be a Sony PlayStation. And you know, we, we just, we never really had enough time or enough money. And Sony, I mean, 3DO altogether ever maybe had, you know, something like $150 million to play with. And Sony invested $2 billion to launch the PlayStation. You know, they yeah. built their own fab yeah. for their custom chips. I mean, their, their commitment was epic and their brand was incredibly strong at that time. 
you know, even Howard Lincoln of Nintendo told me one time that uh, it was no problem for Nintendo dealing with a brand like Sega, but uh, Sony was a whole different deal. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it, uh, you know, it's interesting how it worked out because I, I think if I had known in advance that companies like Sony were going to make things like the PlayStation, it would have been easier to just sit back and wait for uh, the right hardware to come along and still try to figure out how to play the game so you have more leverage and get better deals in the in the licenses. But uh, you know, I think I think 3DO really helped EA get into a better position because when Sony came to EA to negotiate. EA could say, look, we're not going to do this at all unless you give us a really special deal. Yeah, yeah. So just just come back to the conception of the, the 3DO hardware itself and, and the launch of it. What was it about the 3DO that, that was going to be different then? Because it wasn't just about progressing the hardware, was it? It was about working with developers in, in different ways to the way Nintendo and Sega had done in the past. So what did you have planned there? Well, yeah, I, w I wanted to have a, an open, a really open platform with lots of manufacturers supporting it as a standard, kind of like uh, audio CD. And the, uh, uh, the, the thing you needed to do in order to enable there to be a much wider variety of software uh, serving uh, different market segments, including education and, and uh, other kinds of uh, productivity tools, et cetera, uh, you, had to, you, had to, you had to have optical disk media, which had thousands and thousands of times more storage space and speed than floppy disks and was cheap to make. And then you also wanted the license fee to come down to something practicable. And, and uh, you know, something, some people joke, jokingly think that 3DO stands for $3 because that's just coincidentally uh, the license fee that I chose. Uh, but that's not how the company got the name. Uh, but uh, uh, basically, uh, Sony was able to come in later and just say, well, we're just, you know, we're going to start and we're going to charge the, uh, the usual eight to ten dollars like uh, consoles always do and get away with it. And uh, the developers, um, they couldn't really just stick with 3DO and not have a PlayStation version. And it was just easy once you had a 3DO version to port it uh, to the PlayStation. Uh, because the uh, PlayStation had launched in Japan at a $500 price point. And then they come to the U.S. the next year and they launched it at $299. And when they announced that at the trade show uh, that summer, uh, there was an audible gasp in the room. And uh, Howard Lincoln was on the keynote panel where all the hardware guys were talking about this stuff. And, and he just out loud just said, oh, I hope your shareholders like that. Because he thought Sony was making a terrible mistake and was going to lose a tremendous amount of money. But yeah, Sony was very bold and uh, particularly the genius of Ken Kutaragi, uh, an incredibly uh, smart guy, both technically as the architect of the PlayStation, did a great job, but he was also a really great strategic thinker. And they were very thorough and comprehensive in mastering and delivering on every aspect of how to, how to run that business. And uh, that, frankly, that just intimidated all of our partners into thinking, well, uh, Sony's going to win. Let's go support Sony. Yeah, yeah. Before before uh, the PlayStation and, and to a lesser degree, the Sega Saturn come into the picture, just with the 3DO itself, when it came out, were you happy that the console ticked all of the boxes on paper that you wanted to tick? Uh, yes, I was. It was uh, you know, I think the only real problem with the launch was uh, that we, we didn't have killer apps yet. 
you know, there were a couple of pretty good games, but not, not a real killer app. And it was another six to nine months later when you started to have uh, really great games like Road Rash. Uh, you know, uh, there, there were a lot of great games that actually came out uh, in uh, 1994. And some people say, oh, it failed because the price was uh, $700. Actually, the street price, I don't think anybody sold them for more than $599. So it was really street priced at $600. And by February of the new year, a few months later, it was down at $499. Uh, so I don't really think the price is a problem. I think it would have gone better for 3DO if if somehow we had done everything a year earlier and we had hit games at the launch in 93 and had been more patient about being able to line up the hardware launch with the hit games and then had that much more time before PlayStation showed up, okay, that would have made it more interesting. And, you know, I think it's even possible that Sony, if we had had a bigger lead, because Sony did come and talk to me and they didn't reveal what they were doing. Right. But uh, I got the impression because Matsushita and Sony, they're very close. They do talk to each other and they have collaborated on standards many times. And I, I, get, I got the idea that uh, basically Sony was actually kind of intrigued, but they were, you know, just a little too late in their own process. Uh, but if we had been further ahead, then there might have been some reason why we could have all gotten together and collaborated on the same scheme. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned um, Road Rash there. That, that's the game that I remember seeing in the stores when the 3DO was was launched. And it was genuinely jaw-dropping to see it in the stores. It, you know, it was a powerful console. Yes, the Sony PlayStation was then looming and the previews and the rumors started up, which made people say, well, let's hang on. Let's see what comes next from Sony which of course mm -hmm. damaged you. But I've got, I've got a quote here from Edge Magazine, and I just want to know if this was Trip the Marketeer or, or if this was how you were thinking at the time. Um, and you said of the Sony PlayStation, you said, I think when Sony come to market, they might discover that they've underestimated how important traditional cell animation is and, the overrated, uh, and overrated the importance of polygon rendering. Was that you deflecting the possibility that, that Sony might be able to push more polygons or were you genuinely expecting a bigger market in the 2D games and the interactive movies? You, you know, um, obviously that's uh, a good marketing speak. Yeah. Uh, probably in truth, <laughs> terrified about their advantage in polygon processing speed, but uh, also believing in, in uh, the entertainment value of some of the things that 3DO could do. So... Uh, I, I was kind of the, the producer and a designer of uh, a game we had built called Twisted that mm -hmm. got uh, created inside 3DO. And, uh, we, you know, we worked with EA to be the, the official publisher of it. But it was kind of like it was basically kind of an interactive TV game show. And, and uh, there were some trivia type games that copied it later that became very successful as well. And that's an example to me of mass market gaming. So I was I was kind of ahead of my time with the idea of social games. And in fact, uh, you know, Danny Bunton, who uh, led the Mule team that made Mule, uh, she, you know, she also uh, made modem wars with us at EA. That was you know pretty much one of the first uh, games you could play over a modem. Mm -hmm. And and then yeah, here we are with 3D on and I'm doing Twisted, uh, which. Uh, was a game where uh, a family could sit down and play together and you take turns by passing the joystick around. But then we, you know, 3DO had architected it. So you could have a, you could have a game with 16 joysticks all talking to the same 
uh, system of the same screen. And of course, we all remember, uh, where, where some of us remember the uh, six player version of FIFA, which was really cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, these are all kind of pioneering aspects of uh, what we know today in modern gaming that has mass market appeal. And uh, heck, there are plenty of very successful games today that don't have to have really fancy graphics uh, among us. How about that one? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, very successful mobile games that are more about their social value than uh, about 3D immersion. And our willingness to look at things on a tiny little screen kind of tells you that it's really ultimately not about uh, super high technology performance. It's really more about social connection. Sure, sure. So, so you know, there's an, well, 50-50, I guess, in that statement, then you were fearful of the power of the PlayStation, but yeah, you did, you did believe that. And out of Twisted, I remember that game, you had games like You Don't Know Jack, which evolved from it and are still successful to this day. So yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a great format. And then there was this successor to the 3DO, which was to be called the M2 console. How far along did development on that console get? Well, you know, the M2 got uh, really nicely funded. You know, we made arrangements to, to uh, get a uh, $100 million engineering contract to build it out. And so that went on for a few years. So it, it, get, it got finished and there were some uh, game projects being developed for it. You know, the, the stuff that I'm the most familiar with was were the things like uh, Ed Rotberg leading a team to make a racing game that was happening right in the building uh, that, that I worked in. Uh, but uh, Matsushita had funded and therefore had control over the technology. You know, I'm not as uh, familiar with everything they did in terms of what development systems they might have given to developers. So I don't follow that the way some 3DO uh, M2 uh, fans uh, do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, st stuff got built on it. Uh, there were some commercial applications that Matsushita actually released and, and used in Japan, like kiosks and airports. Uh, but uh, clearly Matsushita, even though it's a, you know, at that time they were the, the world's largest consumer electronics manufacturer, but they didn't really understand software and they didn't really understand entertainment the way Sony did. And, you know, Sony w was way more comfortable uh, understanding and quickly uh, planning out a strategy on how to execute in the game industry successfully in a way that honestly for Matsushita, that I think it was just intimidating. And they just looked at what Sony was doing and say, no, we don't want to try to fight with that. So of course the M2 didn't make it to market apart from the, the rare commercial applications that you mentioned it was applied to. When did you realize that it was going to be time to throw in the towel for the 3DA? Yeah, so basically in the mid nineties, it uh, didn't look like developing hardware and convincing somebody to manufacture it and commercialize it, it did look like that was going to be very stable. You know, like you might have, a, it's, it's called a design win. Right. So in, in those days, if you were, um, uh, you know, an early, an early company with a small team that decided to do a graphics chip, your idea was to find uh, one manufacturer that would make it and put it in a commercial product and do a lot of volume. And, uh, you know, PC uh, cards with a graphics processor, they were becoming a big deal. And so that was one way to become uh, established. And then it's harder to get a design win if you're um, trying to get it into a console. 
because maybe Sony wants to make their own graphics processor and maybe they're going to switch horses from time to time. And it's just not something that's all that reliable because they're trying to hit really low price points. And it just didn't seem like a, a particularly stable business. And, and uh, so it was time to just get our hardware business sold. And we sold it to some parts of it were sold to Matsusha. More, most of it was sold to uh, uh, Samsung. Right. And to use that capital from that transaction to uh, expand on the game studio that we already had and have it become a uh, developer of PC and Sony PlayStation games. Right. Okay. So you moved into to the software industry then. Do you think the, the 3DO hardware itself, do you think that gave the gaming industry any kind of legacy that perhaps steered the industry gently in a different direction or did it pass on some good lessons for future console makers? You know, I think we were kind of an icebreaker, you know, plowing through the the polar ice cap. Uh, somebody had to go first. Uh, you know, uh, often everybody on those ships ends up dead. I mean, it's just it's kind of brutal, brutal pioneering work. Uh, but somebody's got to be bold and get out in front and and open it up so that it becomes easier for others to follow. And I've always done that throughout my career. I've, I've enjoyed the fact that I've always been on the bleeding edge. I've always been a pioneer. Uh, I've always been an innovator. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, you get burned a lot. Uh, you know, you, uh, you, you have, you're going to have a lot of failures and you're going to find that you didn't do it quite right. There's, there's a more refined version uh, and now competition is going to figure that out maybe and get ahead of you and spend more money. Uh, and then there's also... Uh, uh, you know, situations where uh, you're just way ahead of where there's really going to be market demand. Because just because you want it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to convince everybody in the public to want it yet. Mm -hmm. But I feel very gratified when I look back on everything that's happened in the game industry and realize that I was just often decades ahead of understanding what was going to happen that everybody would want. And okay, that's an interesting ability that I seem to have. And uh, I couldn't always uh, reconcile the fact that, well, just because I envision it and I want it doesn't mean everybody else is ready for it yet. And, you know, that's the challenge in running a business is you, you need to be quite a bit more practical. But, uh, you know, I, I had plenty of success and, you know, the, uh, the failures are, uh, for me, they're kind of charming and they're human and they were actually fun. Mm -hmm. And as you say, pioneering whether they were successful as a business or not there was certainly uh, in, in the example of the 3do you gave there you know you really did lead the way for that 32-bit generation of consoles to come through um i know that my my listeners would love to know what came next and what you've been doing between then and now i know it's quite a long period now but between the end of the 3do and now i'm sure you didn't sit on your hands so just give us a summary of, of what you've been up to since then trip well, you know, I was already thinking about network games and then the browser came along in 1995. And uh, also uh, I saw the debut around that time of uh, Magic the Gathering, the first collectible trading card game. Okay. And uh, Magic the Gathering kind of blew my mind. I mean, Richard Garfield, the designer, really, really brilliant guy. And he, he had a few incredible breakthrough ideas that are of course now readily copied by hundreds of video game companies. But, uh, you know, he basically created a virtual goods economy and and uh, he kind of invented the loot box. <laughs> so <laughs> FIFA Ultimate Team, uh, loot boxes, uh, they're basically like packages of magic cards 
And what hadn't been done with uh, packages of sports trading cards is you couldn't use them in a game. You know, so that was Richard Garfield with Magic that said, hey, let's use them in a game. And then he also said, hey, let's manipulate the scarcity of the really good ones. And that creates that avid uh, third party trading market where uh, the Black Lotus you know, sells for thousands of dollars. Anyway, um, uh, it inspired me and I decided, uh, hey, uh, there's a whole bunch of Internet related stuff that we could do. And so I was starting to think about that in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, magic came out, I started, you know, hearing about the browser and, and, uh, uh, and then literally by 1995, 96, we were really actively working on stuff and, uh, and I was authoring patents and it was kind of an exciting period. And th that ended up resulting in us in acquiring the developers and becoming the, the publisher of Meridian 59. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first, that was the first MMO with any graphics. And, and again, that's a, just a classic example of pioneering. And there were, there were some really fascinating things that were learned from that experience. Again, coming back to the theme about social value, because here's a super hardcore, geeky, nerdy, violent video game. And we found that the players were uh, having their avatars uh, get married to other avatars. And they would pick uh, a high status avatar to be the master of ceremonies. And they would all gather in the biggest cave and invite their friend avatars. None of this had anything to do with how you're <laughs> supposed to play this game. In fact, what they were doing is very dangerous because uh, if other people knew about it, they could raid it and kill a bunch of them and take their stuff, you know? <laughs> so um, that was already mind boggling. And this is again in the mid nineties. And, and then the next thing we'd find out is that some of the uh, human beings behind the avatars would get married in real life and have children. How mind boggling is this that we're using a super hardcore violent video game and we're making babies. Uh, you know, we're, we're hooking up, we're mating. Wow. You know, so again, uh, ultimately that's what's driving the game industry today is the social value of it. And, uh, and I, I've been, pretty much focused on the digital, you know, networking, internet, social, mobile side ever since that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in particular, I, you know, I got involved in mobile back in 2003. And, uh, you know, my colleagues uh, in Sumea, a company I acquired uh, at Digital Chocolate in, in 2004, you know, we, we worked together for several years. Uh, towards the end of that time period, we we're trying to figure out how to do free to play you know, iPhone games with virtual goods economies. And we, we mastered many of the best practices, but we couldn't figure out how to get people to spend enough money. And then uh, some of them went off and struggled and continued to have failures at it in a startup in Finland, uh, near our old office. And then they made Heyday and that game did pretty well. And then the next game was Clash of Clans. And then a year or two later, they were acquired by Tencent for $10 billion. Wow. So. <laughs> Anyway, it's, I, I feel like I've been at, you know, in the front row uh, at the table watching the development of the whole mobile ecosystem uh, for its entire life, going back to the Java phones. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been uh, a really fascinating experience. And what I've done in the last uh, several years after running, you know, a few companies in the mobile space myself, I, I just help other uh uh, great tech leaders and startups and earlier stage companies help them figure out how to be uh, successful 
And uh, three of my client companies have actually become unicorns. That means they're now worth over a billion dollars. So one of them wow. uh, went public recently. It's a company called Skills, S-K-I-L-L-Z. Uh, probably uh, many in your audience are familiar with it. And uh, I'm, I'm still actively working with uh, not just uh, game companies today, but uh, other technology companies. Wow. Wow. It's great that you're sharing your knowledge in that way and, and still continuing to create huge success um, for yourself and for other people. Of course, EA is still around a huge company these days. When you look at EA in the present day, do you, rec do you recognize the company that you founded all those years ago? Yeah, I do. And I've kind of always thought about it like it's my first child. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of proud of EA because they've kind of grown into adulthood and they've had their missteps, just like, uh, you know, every parent knows what I'm talking about because every parent, uh, their children don't do everything perfectly. They make uh, their share of mistakes, you know, but it's, uh, it's great to have EA mature into an adult and, and uh, still be here. It's been almost 40 years now. And so, yeah, I, I take pride in uh, knowing the fact that they wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me and that I really shaped the company in its uh, you know, first decade. And um, I, uh, I hope they continue to be very successful. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Tripp, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, just as one final question, if you had to pick one year from your career, one sweet spot where you were happiest professionally, what year would you pick? You know, it, it uh, could very well, I'd have to think about it more, but just offhand, I'm thinking 1990 because I had been on that journey uh, to reverse engineer uh, the Sega. And it, for those of you that happen to be fans of my favorite movie, which is Lawrence of Arabia, there's a scene in there about something that really happened in history in, in World War One, which was uh, taking Aqaba, which was a, the a town at the tip at the end of the uh, uh, Gulf of Aqaba. And it was very important to the British military efforts to get into that uh, Gulf and be able to bring a lot of heavy equipment and stuff into that town and you know allow it to uh, put pressure on the Ottoman Empire and to drive towards uh, Damascus. And they didn't think it was possible because the Turks held uh, Aqaba and had guns facing the sea that were a threat to any ships that might come in. And uh, the, the true person, the real person, uh, T.E. Lawrence, he came up with this idea of sneaking around, crossing a uh, almost impassable desert and uh, coming in and capturing Aqaba from the rear with a, a band of uh, Arab rebels that uh, were, were willing to take all the risks to do that. And of course, this really happened and it's very uh, delightfully portrayed in the film. And, and I uh, feel like uh, what I was doing in 1990, that was my Aqaba. And uh, just like the real Lawrence, it kind of went to my head. And that's what leads you to the, the to 3DO. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, was, I was in the honeymoon stage as far as, as 3DO goes. So I, I didn't know it was ultimately going to be a disappointment. Wonderful. So 1990 is a, a romantic view and uh, very honest as to what happened next <laughs> thank, thank you trip for your time today and if you're if you're viewing and you're a patron of the channel stick around trip will now answer the patron questions and if not thank you for watching and take care thank you happy okay. gaming everyone thank you bye-bye bye-bye